Welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord. I'm Evan Ball. Today we have Sasha Lazor from the Mad Caddies on the show. Given that Sasha operates in the punk scene, the reggae scene, and now even the hip-hop scene, we cover a lot of interesting ground. This episode's also unique because it includes two rounds. We did the initial interview, and then we crossed paths again a couple weeks later and added to it. This was great because it's often the case that I'll interview someone, listen to it, and then wish I could ask some follow-up questions. So this time, I actually could. For example, in round one, Sasha mentions that he's working with this artist, Doja Cat, and not really being up to date on my hip-hop or my TikTok. I didn't know who she was, but I should have. It turns out, after looking her up, that she's a huge artist. So we were able to hit that topic more in round two. Also... For whatever reason, there's been a trend on recent episodes of stories of artists being harassed or harmed at shows. Staying true to that trend, Sasha talks about getting punched in the face at a show. But more broadly, we have an illuminating discussion about road life in general. It really is a lifestyle that's so different from the average person's daily experiences. From the worldly benefits of traveling the globe to the challenges of constantly moving, we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of touring. We talk about being 20 years old in a local punk scene and getting a phone call from Fat Mike of No Effects wanting to sign his band, and how his fascination with reggae music led him to Jamaica. So we'll talk about his experiences just showing up in Kingston, not like at a resort, but real Jamaica, meeting the right people, and then with his skills, getting plugged into the studio scene there in Kingston. So without further delay, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Sasha Lazor. Sasha Lazor, welcome to the podcast. Hello, how are you? Good, good. All right, so we first met back in 1997, back in the 1900s. Yeah. <laughs> and so my cousin Scotty and I were on the Warp Tour, Mad Caddies were on the Warp Tour. So was that, was that one of your first tours or, or were you guys already pretty seasoned by that point? That was, we had only been touring for maybe two months, not even two months. Maybe we did one, one or two tours before then. You've been pretty much touring ever since then. I'm wondering, d- does this all blend together? Can you actually distinguish like that was the 97 Warp Tour versus that, that was 98 Warp Tour? I mean, earlier tours, you know, they definitely stick out because a lot of things were monumental, you know, yeah. and a lot of the first time we'd ever been to certain places, the first time something never happened. You know, first time I ever got hit in the head with a, like a CD, you know, yeah, whatever yeah. it was. It's a lot of like firsts that you remember. If I said Limp Biscuit, would that be 97 Warp Tour or 98 Warp Tour? Oh, uh, Limp. Oh, man. I think that was 97. Because we only did like a week or two in the 97 Warp Tour. Okay. And then we did all of 98. That's right. Okay. But, but yeah, the, the uh, Limp Biscuit was, uh, Kid Rock was 2000. It was, Kid Rock was 98. Do you remember that? They were on the small stage and no one knew who they were. And they were, they were signed to a major label, but they didn't have any, any singles released yet. So yeah. we had this guy with all these gold chains. Everyone was kind of scratching their head. Who, who are these guys? In a, in a punk scene, that's very... I talked to him briefly. We were waiting for a van to take us from, uh, from the island in New York uh, to, into the city. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that was the day after like, Fletcher ripped off his chains. I don't know if you heard that story. I remember hearing that. One of the many yeah. Fletcher stories. But yeah, Fletcher from Pennywise, I guess, had ripped off some of his gold chains. And um, I remember just kind of like at the day after, just kind of feeling bad for the guy. 
Yeah, yeah I remember. Like, oh, um, man, like this, he seems like kind of a nice enough dude, you know? Like yeah. his guitar player was cool. And the yeah, drum, Kenny. The, I remember Kenny the drummer, would come. Yeah, Kenny was cool. He was the drummer, super cool, yeah. The chick, she was awesome. Yeah. And so I chatted him up a little bit. And then, you know, like, you know, a month later. <laughs> remember we got home from the tour and they were just huge. Yeah. They just blew up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of bands like yeah. that, you know? We started hanging out. We were all around 20 years old at that point. But we also realized we we're from a similar part of the globe. So you guys are exactly. from San Inez, California. San Inez. Right. Uh, um, you guys are from San Luis, which is yeah. only like about an hour, maybe a little less by car. Yeah. San Inez is basically right in between Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo, basically. Yes. Right. What, what can you say about San Inez? I want to I get the origins of Mad Caddies the here. Or, the, down, okay, the origin. San Inez, well, it's very rural. It's a lot of horses. Um, now there's a lot of wineries ever since the movie Sideways, but uh, pre-Sideways, there was only a couple of That's a good reference point for people. So Sideways. The, yeah, the, this the, kind of like saying it's a wine mecca now. And, post, you know? yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a very rural, very small town. Yeah, it's, a, it's great to be from there. You know? Are a lot of bands coming out of San Diego's? <laughs> no, but there's actually a lot of really great musicians that come from San Diego's. Well, like Michael know? Jackson? Yeah, Michael Jackson. <laughs> you know, we met Michael Jackson. Did you really? Yeah. We met Michael Jackson. In, it was around the time we got, it was like 96 or something like that. And at that time, you know, on a Sunday in Los Olivos, which was the town that uh, was closest to Neverland Ranch, yeah. a Sunday was like a ghost town. There was nobody out. So we went to go, We just me and Carter, our other guitar player, we'd come from a wedding and we were about to head back to Santa Barbara and... The guy at the liquor store, we stopped to get some Gatorade or whatever. And the guy at the liquor store said, uh, hey, you guys know Michael Jackson's next door buying some art. There's a little art gallery there. I said, oh, that's cool. You know, we didn't really care, you know. So we got in the car and we started driving. And then I was talking to my buddy, Carter. I said, hey, dude, we're going back. We were going back to Santa Barbara to hang out with these chicks. <laughs> so we said, how cool it would be if we got Michael Jackson's autograph for these girls. And he's like, turn around. Let's do it. <laughs> so we turned around. And we went back, and sure enough, as soon as we got to where he was supposed to be, he came out of the art gallery. It was him okay. by himself, no, yeah. no security. Okay. That, back in that time, like, it was a sleepy town. Mm-hmm. He could go out on a Sunday and drive around by himself. And he did drive around a lot by himself. Wow. So uh, he was with himself and two little boys. He came out of the art gallery, and he said, um, I said, Michael, can we get your autograph? He said, yeah, come over to the van. <laughs> this sounds really weird. But he said, come over to the van because I need to get out of the sun. And we're just like, yeah, sure. He's wearing this big like Zorro hat and like a you know surgical mask. Like, so we went over to the van and he got in the front seat and then turned around and we hung out for like five minutes. That is, so and the crazy. kids got in the back and you know, we're like, yeah, we play in this band. At that time, we were called the Ivy League. We said, you know, we're playing in Santa Barbara. Like, I think the day before, after we were playing at the Emerald City or, or Coach House or whatever it was called at the time. I said, we're playing a show. It's like, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll go. You know, just kind of bullshitting us. We're like, dude, we'll put you on the list. I said, yeah, put me on the list. And so we literally really put Michael Jackson on the guest list. And, you know, the guy at the door, I remember, is like, you know, we're like, hey, you never know, just in case. Oh, that so, is so good. <laughs> but yeah, back in that time, San Inez was a very small and sleepy town. Did people know where Neverland was? Do you know the roads to get there? Or is it just this mystery? You no, know, I mean, it's, I mean, the house is, you know, probably a half mile off of the road. So we I mean, everybody knows like the road in the area where he lives, but as far as Neverland, you can't see that from the road. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we had a, definitely some, some, uh, some of our buddies, little, little brothers and sisters went out there and just had a great time, you know, birthday party. Oh, they whatever. were there. Yeah. You know, all that stuff came a couple of years later. Not, and then you know, looking back on it, it's kind of more sinister. But at the time, it was just like, you know, right. totally normal. Yeah. That people have, like have Michael Jackson spottings around saying this. But then yeah. when Sideways hit, the movie, the wine movie, then uh, 
it really helped the tourism in San Ynez. Are your parents still there? Mm-hmm. So they've noticed the change for sure. Yeah, 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 every, yeah. yeah everybody has. You know, yeah. uh, and it's my, all the my, towns around there from Los Olivos, yeah, Bielton, Los Olivos, Solvang. Bielton, Solvang, yeah. you know, and now there's tons of wineries and it, it's, it's growing you know, on the weekends. It's really busy. But, you know, at the same time, it's still managed to retain its kind of small town vibe. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, it's so nice to go back, especially living in L.A. to kind of, you know, I can be at door to door in less than two hours if I leave at like 1 a.m. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. This next question might sound a little untactful, but it's actually a compliment. Okay. So, um, <laughs> let me back. <laughs> Are you German? <laughs> yeah. Let me preface this. A lot of questions. So you, you guys have had a very long, awesome career touring the world, fans all over, uh-huh. catchy, unique songs. Why aren't you guys even bigger? Why aren't we bigger? Yeah. I mean, I would say that, you know, we have a core fan base and, um, I mean, if I had to lay it down to one thing, I don't know. I mean, I've always felt, you know, that we just, we have a cool sound and we have a cool style, I think. And I just think we can still just be writing, you know, better, catchier songs. I mean, because when you listen to what what gets more mainstream success, it's usually not songs like Monkeys, you know? And so th- that's all I can say is that just our sound is just a little bit more selective, you know? Yeah. But I still think that we, we can, can do better within the the kind of the boundaries of the Mad Caddies, we can still just write some, you know, simpler, catchier. I mean, tunes. the reason why I say that, I feel like you already have the songs. I feel like you have the ingredients with Chuck's voice and his melodies and then putting that to ska and reggae and the creative stuff you do. Yeah. It just seems very digestible. I don't know, yeah, for, I mean, for radio and commercial play. Oh, as far as, as far as for mainstream radio, I mean, maybe at a time, but I never considered mainstream radio to be much of an option. Um, you know, I mean, thank God the reason, the entire reason why our band is still around is because of being able to, to play in other countries like in Europe, yeah, um, Australia, there's many other places where we've gone that our band is much more popular than it is in the States. So, uh, and like, you know, the, cl- the cliche, like big in Japan or whatever, <laughs> you know, we're not actually that big in Japan, but Germany, <laughs> Belgium. Yeah. That's know, how uh, fun, you know, that's, that's kept our band going. You know, I mean, we still are just like, we're actually working on some new songs right now. Yeah. Um, and, but as far as... But you don't really seek, you're not really seeking radio airplay or... I, I mean, I don't know what that even means these well, days. Well, I mean, but, the, the, there's a couple of things. First of all, as far as radio airplay, Fat Mike said from the beginning, you know, if you're looking to be on the radio, we're not right. going to serve it. And especially at that time, there was payola. You know, there's a lot of, it yeah. still happens, but there's a lot of things going on with radio that they didn't want any part of. And so, and he was, Mike is someone who's very upfront about things like that. He said, you know, we're not going to pay a lot of money for music videos. We're not going to pay, you know, like do a lot of things, you know, in case ass to get on the radio, but you know, you're going to have the fat records fan base and the compilations and that's done well for a lot of bands. And then, you know, anything from there, you know, yeah. that, that's a bonus. And we said, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. And you know, I, there's a lot of other bands that got signed around the time that we did on the major labels and none of them were there two years later. Right, you, you, you know? might sacrifice longevity. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I and I think we at the time, uh, you know, I don't know if we knew if it was foresight or whether we just wanted to. As long as Fat Mike thought we were cool, that was way cooler than being on Arista. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I remember we we played a, a music conference in Portland, and this girl from Arista, she came and she's like, "Oh, you know, I like you guys. I want to, you know, want to talk to you guys about doing a deal." And we didn't have any CDs. And she's like, I'm going to give you $20. Mail me a CD. 
and we took the 20 bucks and we went and bought beer <laughs> and never mailed a receipt CD. So we, didn't, we just didn't really care, you know? Yeah. Super punk play. Yeah. We didn't really care. And, but, and like I said, I think who knows where our career would be if we had, uh, but I have a feeling just like a lot, like every genre of music, you know, ebbs and flows and you know, usually and you guys are 25 years in. Yeah. Now. Major labels don't stick around for, you know, for the tough times. Yeah. You know, so um, so right now we can call Fat Mike tomorrow and be like, hey, we want to put our album. And, you know, it's, it's a very easy thing. Right, right. No contracts, no anything. We just kind of, it's very casual. So yeah. where is your favorite country to tour? There's a lot of places that we enjoy going. Uh, uh, Portugal has always been really fun. Mm-hmm. I think our band has uh, done well in Portugal and it's... Uh, just everything about it we really enjoy. Yeah. You know, similar to California in a lot Is of ways. Food, weather, people. Every, every, everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of great people, yeah. you know, that we've met, uh, the promoters and, and stuff there, some great friends from there. Um, a lot of fond memories attached because we end a tour in Portugal and spend a couple of days on the beach. We do really well in Germany and Belgium, and it's always fun to go there. We've been to Venezuela, we've been to Ecuador, South Africa, Tasmania. You know, we've been do you like some, to dive into the culture when you're there? Or do you get a chance to? Yeah, as much as we possibly yeah, can. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think uh, all of us, there's not a lot of time to, but as much as we can, we try to. Yeah. You know? Food and. Food, booze, you know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, that's honestly, you know, it's, it's not the money. Like, that's the most beneficial part of being able to tour for so long is to have been able to travel all over and to really, really be familiar with certain places. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and like I said, it, it might you you might go to you know Paris. You might only be there for one day, but you're there for one day. You know, once or twice a year. No, music so, it really does afford you a unique and amazing life with, with so many so many experiences that that most people don't have access to. Yeah, really. yeah. yeah. I mean, I I can honestly say I don't know how many times I don't think I've ever been in an Uber and been stumped with the driver as far as like where he lived. Or where right. he f- came from, or something about the music or the food or something, you know. I mean, and it's really, it's really an amazing thing to, you know, at the end of the day to be able to have those experiences. Yeah, you know. Well, speaking of that, so it, we crossed paths <laughs> last time. I think it was a couple of years ago at Nam, and we briefly talked about Jamaica. So you, you mm. actually, did you live in Jamaica for a while? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. So, so how'd that come about? Well, I got into, I mean, I got into reggae obviously with the band. But in about 99, I, re- I really got into reggae and it became my, my favorite music. And uh, I read this book called Wake the Town and Tell the People that uh, this guy named Norman Stolzoff wrote. And it was about uh, Jamaican culture and dancehall reggae culture and how after Bob Marley, how a lot of things in the, uh, in the music has shifted, you know, from being about the original message of reggae to being more... Um, about dance hall, a little bit more like lighthearted and fun party kind of vibe and how the culture, you know, everything from the politics and the drug culture, how everything kind of was a factor in that. And it was an amazing book. And so I wrote him, I just said, Hey, I love the book, you know? And like, I just want to say it, it really, I just loved it. You know? And he wrote back saying, Oh, thank you. You know? And he was planning on taking a trip back to do some follow up and a follow up article for a magazine. And I said, hey, I'd love to go with you. Like, I want to go to Jamaica, but I do not want to go to Negril. <laughs> you know, I do not want to go to Montego Bay. Yeah. I want to go to a studio and I want to, you know, and he said, absolutely. You know, so he took me down and what, like the, literally dropped me off at a recording studio and left for the day. 
And this was in Kingston, you know, no beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, nothing. Real and Jamaica. Real I mean, is, is, is real. Not, is, is, my, I, I honeymoon in uh, sandals, so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so that, I, and that's great, too. I mean, you know, like, you know, those all-inclusives so, are fine. You yeah, know? that was great. This was not sandals. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so all the artists at the time, um, you know, I just, I was just like a kid in a candy store. You know, I, I didn't, and I had, I had brought down some music, some reggae that I had made, and but that wasn't really my intention. I was so overwhelmed by just being there. And even with all the traveling that I had done, I'd never really done anything that in a culture and like a third world country like Jamaica, which was so different than the, a lot of the countries that we get to go to. Yeah. And not only that, but just, you know, the language was hard. I couldn't really understand the Patois, you yeah. know, uh, everything about it. But I How want, long were you there? I wanted to throw myself in. The first time I was only there for a week. Okay. And then... From that time, I met the engineer and a couple of the uh, singers, that, you know, for, at the studio. So I felt comfortable after then going down by myself. Were you just sort of a fly on the wall in the studio the first time? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And then at the end of the trip, uh, I had a couple beats and some of the singers they just sang on them just kind of for fun, you know. Yeah. And I took it back to America, going, oh, like I just did real reggae music. Yeah. Like this yeah. is real, you know. Like I still have the songs. You know, they're not that great, <laughs> but uh, at the time it was like the biggest dream that I'd had. It was almost just kind of like getting signed on Fat Records. It was something that I just thought about and, and dreamed about and just did, you know? And uh, so once I had met those friends and artists in Jamaica, I went back. I went to different studios and met more people. And then that- Did you was, rent a place? The first one or two times I stayed at a hotel. And then once I met friends and I stayed at their houses. And some of the guys that I met that were, um, they were kind of like investors in, in reggae record labels. I stayed at their houses. They had usually pretty big houses because they had a decent amount of money. So, and then I started working for them. I met you know different artists like Beanie Man and and and. Uh, what in what capacity were you working for them? I mean, like I would just be making beats. Like okay. a lot of the time, the producers there, you know, they'd be these kids with their drum machines, you know, and they'd be in the studio. And th there's no shortage of musicians. They excuse me, musicians. You know, they could get guitar players to come in and, and jam on their stuff, but not someone like me, you know, not like a, a punk rock kid from California, Yeah, you know, who, and at the time, even though I loved reggae music, I didn't want to go down and just be another person wearing red, gold, and green, listening to Bob Marley. Like, I didn't want to be Jamaican. Like, I wanted to kind of impart part of, and, and California is a cool place to be from as well, you know? So I wanted to kind of bring that side of it to the music, you know, so I, I played a lot of like rock guitar, punk rock guitar and some songs, and you know, like I had more Jamaicans saying, yo, dude, than I ever said, like, yeah, man. Well, you were, you know? you were probably <laughs> like, better accepted than if you came down with dreads and a fake accent. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. Because, I mean, every producer that you meet down there, they, at, at the time, it's a little different now with the internet. You can g dial up any sound. You can get anything you want in the touch of a button. At the time, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, someone like me bringing that was an asset because it was different, you know? Yeah. And, and at the time, producers, they, every, everyone wanted something different. So, you know, it was, uh, it was right place, right time. Was and safety ever a concern? The only reason I ask yeah. is because, you know, you do get these, these sort of tourist warnings that, you know, stay in your resort. Yeah, no, no. It, it, I mean, if you go to a bad area, you know, you know bad things can happen to you. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the... the the, the reputation is because a lot of a lot of Jamaicans are very aggressive salesmen. <laughs> so, right. you know, like if you're from Iowa, you know, like whether it's, you know, a trip to see Bob Marley's house or buying some weed or buying, a, you know, some 
a wood carved like figurine or something like that. And a lot of it's like kind of the language barrier and just the fact that they're trying to sell stuff because they're poor, you know, and they're trying to feed their family. Um, so I think it gets a bad rap as far as that goes. I've, I have plenty of stories about stuff that, you know, crazy stuff that happened. But that was after being there for a long time and being in certain areas. But that's just going to happen to you sooner or later. Random crime, like a pickpocketing or like a theft. Yeah. Uh, at least when I was in Jamaica, it was v- much more rare for that to happen there than it would be in like Eastern Europe <coughs> or South America. Yeah. Uh, because the neighborhoods, even though they have a reputation for being violent, they're actually can be very safe because it's self-policed and there's a lot of vigilante justice. So in a lot of ways, you know, things like rape, like it's very, very uncommon for those ty- certain things to happen. You know, sure, there's a lot of violence that comes from gangs from turf wars, from drug wars, you know, from a, a drive-by. But a lot of those typical kind of crime things, so, like, were n- not nearly as, like, uh, prevalent as, as you'd think. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. So, I mean, it was really... I, I, I could have my rental car, drive up to the, the place where I lived in Jamaica, have the window rolled down all day with my, lap, with my MacBook Pro sitting right in the front seat, and I would never worry about it being taken. You know? Really? Yeah. And I, I can't think anywhere I'd do that, you know? So it's, because it's, of the, the cowboy justice thing. It, well, I mean, and, and the people that I knew were, you know. You kind of had some street cred going on. Yeah, I had, too, I had street yeah. cred for sure, you know? Yeah. And, and so the people that I knew, I mean, it's, it just wouldn't happen. Yeah. You know, or and if it did, the person would have to like leave the neighborhood, you know? Like it's. Right. So um, it was just an amazing learning experience, yeah. you know? I've been thinking about writing a couple of stories down just from my experiences there, but I don't want to try to paint it, you know, because I think Jamaica gets enough bad reputation. And I also want to highlight, like I said, like the the good parts about it, you know, that there's a a lot of insanely talented people down there. And, uh, you know, it was like the the best thing I've ever done, I think. So back to the band, were you guys all at what, Sandy and Ed's high school? Uh, Yes. That's where I met uh, uh, Chuck, our singer, and um, our other guitar player at the time, Carter. And our bass player and Todd, our drummer, we all came from the same high school. And, you know, th- we just kind of were getting into punk rock. We just kind of, you know, it was obviously very innocent and, you know, very... What about your sound? Because you have a very eclectic and distinct sound. Was, yeah. was, it, was it deliberate that at the, the formation of the band, this is what kind of band we want to be? Or was it... You no, just have well, to, uh, no, initially, no. I mean, when we first started playing, we just were playing what sounded good to us. But yeah, we yeah. were also doing heavy metal. We were doing like waltzes. You know, it was, uh, okay. you know, we also had like a Mr. Bungle kind of influence. So we were, we were all over the map. Did you have any high school gigs? Like when you play at lunchtime? Yeah, we played lunchtime in our high school. Nice. Yeah. How was the reception? I, you know, I mean, just, I, I don't, I don't even remember. I've I was, seen probably, some, I was yeah. probably too, you know, yeah. too petrified to yeah. even look at. I've seen some awkward high school performances. Oh yeah. It was, I, I've seen a couple of photos, you know, yeah. I, I had hair down to like my, my, my upper back you know, like long hair, but yeah, no, we, I mean, we, I mean, we played our, my graduation party in my senior year. And then after high school, I moved to Seattle for a year as my parents mm. had moved. So I went with my parents to Seattle. And then after about a year of being there, I said, you know, like the band had just started and I said, I got to go back. And then that's when we really put the band together and put, uh, recorded a demo and the demo got us our first shows. And then that's how things kind of happened. Okay. Know? And we were lucky enough to be in, uh, in Santa Barbara at that time. There was a lot of bands coming through like every weekend, you know, t- two, three times a week. There was 
Are these and, like numbskull shows? Yeah, numbskull yeah. so shows. So that was the local promoter in our area who'd bring all the all the punk shows yeah, through. Lots of Eddie numbskull shows, uh, other shows that were just, you know, um, the living room and then the coach house. And then obviously you had uh, UCSB there. Yeah, yeah. So we had a lot of shows on Del Playa, like you know, for the university, sure. you know, tons yeah, yeah. of shows like that. So Del Playa for everyone, that's that's the party street for you at UCSB. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh I heard it's still pretty pretty good yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, a lot of bands got their start on you know. So th- those were the ba- the basic rotation. And you could show up sometimes without a party booked and just find a house oh, yeah. house to play. We we, we yeah. there were times when we'd show up, get uh, have the police shut down one party, and just move the gear like four houses down and set up and, and play our set and be fine. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so we we were very lucky to be at that time. It was so many shows to play and a lot. The first time that we played, we lucked out because when we played our first uh, like show at a, at a club in Santa Barbara, like all of our friends from San Inez came. Yeah. So there was like 90, 100 people just from San Inez that had come to the show. And the band that we were opening for uh, called The Flesh Tones, they're a band from like the 80s. Like they, were, they didn't draw that many people. And it was came very clear once we played and three quarters of the crowd left, you know, the promoter's like, oh, wow. Yeah, you upstaged the main event. You know, yeah. so we have a, a lot of our friends and, and you know, all, not, they weren't even fans at the time. They were just our friends that happened to, you know, support our band. They were the reason why the promoter put us on more shows. So as soon as we did that one show and the promoter saw, next week, oh, can you do this one? Can you do this one? Can you do this one? So, you know, we started playing once a week. It's in Santa Barbara, you know, once every two weeks, in addition to shows at, you know, at UCSB. And then we started coming up to like San Luis Obispo and then it kind of started to grow from there. Yeah. How do you see the music scene in general looking back mid nineties? Like what's the lay of the land? Well, I mean, a lot of punk rock, yeah. you know, and a lot of ska and you know, especially in Southern California, that was pretty much it. You know, Sublime, you know, was at its peak. Uh, no doubt was just kind of starting to get, to get really popular once they blew up. Yeah. Um, and that was huge. You know, I remember seeing, we, we didn't open for No Doubt, but we saw them at the Underground, which was like a 300 capacity club. Yeah. You know, and what, like three months later, they were on MTV, you know, Just a Girl right. come out. So yeah, there were a handful of those yeah, bands. Yeah, Green Day, actually, same thing. And, like, and I the wasn't there. Yeah. Sublime, Green Day, and No Doubt, you go see all the time in a club, you know, 300 capacity. Yeah. Originally, when I got into get, playing guitar, I was into rock music. Guns N' Roses, like, was hands down my most, the most influential thing at the, at the time. And then I got into a lot of different bands like Guns N' Roses. And then hearing them, they talk about bands that they are into. So um, you know, I heard about the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and I got into punk rock. And then even though I love practicing and playing guitar, you know, it was really cool just to be able to sit in my bedroom and play three chords and actually play along with it, you know, rather than yeah. trying to learn the solo for, you know, out to get me or something like that. Right. Well, that's <laughs> when everyone, a lot of people in the guitar industry think guitar is dead. But actually, it just became completely accessible to so many more people, yeah. and you could play almost any song. Because I mean, think about it: we, like when you sit there and you air guitar, like p- kids that used to like play with their tennis racket and, and you know to like kiss alive or whatever. All right, it's not far off from being able to do that and being able to play three chords <laughs> and play you know, like the Blitzkrieg Bob. You know, yeah. it's a very minimal amount yeah. of effort that you need to put in. And once right. you're there, then you're there. And yeah. once you get bit by that, then you're you're good to go. Yeah, you know? for sure. So I got into punk rock, and then. Uh, far as reggae and ska um just you know like most of it was just reading interviews and hearing about people talk about other bands so i got into the specials and bob marley and things like that and uh and then our, for our band you know like uh, i really got into this band called the squirrel nut zippers and started like when i was a kid my parents used to always listen to glenn miller and swing and stuff like that 
But uh, once I heard the squirrel and the zippers, I really started getting into like traditional jazz and New Orleans jazz. And that's kind of what happened as far as with our band is once we were out there and we saw that there was a lot of bands doing punk and ska, um, we said, well, what else can we do that's a little different that'll set us apart? And so I started bringing in some of the chord progressions and some of the vibe from the like New Orleans jazz kind of yeah, stuff. So that was more your band. contribution right there, bringing yeah. that element. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a conscious decision, but you know, that was only, there's not many other genres of music. You know? We said, we got horns, like, so yeah. well, what can we do right. that incorporates right. all that? You yeah. know? So we said, hey, let's just sound like the Squirrel Nut Zippers meets like no effects. Yeah. You know? This is kind of a, a, I don't know, the basic question. Do you know how this marriage of punk and ska originally came together? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, two-tone, you know, the genre of music, you know, the madness and the specials, yeah, yeah. you know, I would say, and that was, they brought the punk rock energy with the playing reggae and ska, yeah. you know, and so it was only a natural progression from there. You know, they didn't play straight up punk into ska, but they had the, the, the attitude, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, and then it was just inevitable from there as far as like, who was the first first? I don't know, but right, know, right, right. obviously, you know, bands that we really liked earlier bands like, uh, Operation Ivy, uh, the Boston's, um, those were the earlier bands that were doing it yeah. that we really enjoyed. Right, right. Okay. So how'd you guys get signed? You go from, from local San Inez band broadening out to Santa Barbara and yeah. then you get signed to yeah. Honest Dawns. Yeah. Well, we, we were at a point after playing for a while where we didn't have any, long-term ambitions so we said you know maybe who knows maybe in two months we'll break up and just go to college and and do whatever so we got together uh, money we borrowed some money from our parents a couple thousand dollars total and we we recorded basically everything that we had that was worthy of recording up until that time we said Mm -hmm. let's just document it uh and have a good quality recording of you know 12 of our songs and then who knows maybe something will happen maybe if not we'd have a good document of you know what we did at right, this time. Right. And when we were and we recorded it at this studio called Orange Whip in Santa Barbara, which at the time was one of the bigger studios in Santa Barbara. And, and the guy Angus who was engineering and basically produced that first record, he also was working with Joey Cape from Lagwagon. He was like, Hey man, I think this is cool. Like I'll play it for Joey and and we said, oh, that'd be great, you know? And then he played it for Joey. And, you know, I don't think it, you know, Joey at that time had his record label as well, but it was more like a singer-songwriter kind of pop punk, yeah. you know, which definitely was not our band. But, you know, he's like, you know, Fat Mike keeps on talking, you know, Fat Mike from No Effects keeps on talking about wanting to sign a band. You know, maybe this is something that he'd be into, kind of a band that does reggae and ska and punk rock. Joey gave the CD to Fat Mike and then we, you know, we found, we heard about it. We said, oh, wow, that's crazy. Fat Mike is going to hear our right. CD, you know? And then a couple of days later, I mean, I still remember I was in like the dining room and my mom was in the kitchen and the phone rang and uh, my mom picked it up and said, hello. And then she said, Sasha, there's a Fat Mike on the phone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I knew, I mean, all of our friends knew that, that, that Mike had the CD. And so I knew it was someone messing with me. Right, right. You know? And so I picked up the phone and just said, all right, who is this? I said, ha ha, funny, you know, who is this? And he said, hey, it's Fat Mike. And once I heard the voice, yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is Fat Mike. That is so awesome. And and he, what are you, he, 20 he, years old, 19? Yeah, 19, 20, I think. Yeah. And he said, uh, I, heard, I heard you're a CD, I like it. I want to put it out. That was literally basically what I said. And I said, uh, okay. And got the contact info and then... Basically, that was it. Wow. You know? yeah. And then we went up to San Francisco and met. But with, it wasn't Fat Records. 
No, it was on yeah. Honest Dance. Yeah. Which was at a time, uh, Fat, you know, Fat Records was Mike's band or Mike's label that had mostly punk rock. Yeah. And Honest Dons was a label for other bands that were a, a bit different, you know, yeah. that didn't kind of fit into that Fat Records sound at the time. But Fat Records, just for the record, sort of ran through the center of the scene. I mean, they had a lot of the big bands. There's kind of some status there. I mean, being a, and you were affiliated with Fat Records. So yeah. I'm just thinking being a 19, 20 year old and, and getting this offer, you're, yeah, you're in. There's no such thing as a better scenario. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, for us at the time, I mean, that, you, you couldn't have asked for, I mean, I, we, would have, we wouldn't have been half as thrilled if a major label had called and said, hey, we want to put out your album. You yeah. know, yeah, and they said, "Oh, what else have you done? Oh, we did Candlebox or like, whatever." Right. Not that you know, you know I'm just saying, as sure. far as we wanted to be other genres of music, you know, at that time it was very important to be, you know, part of a scene. Yeah, and at the time, the, the scene was very big and very solid, so it was a great uh, opportunity. And also, too, and by the time we had uh, he heard our first, what became our first album, we had had a bunch. We had gotten more aggressive and started doing more punk rock. And we originally didn't even really want to put out that first album. We said, hey, we're on with Fat Mike and we're with No Effects now. Our music is a lot more hard. We kind of want to ditch some of the, the more mellow songs on Quality Softcore, which became our first album, and just kind of do more songs that represented where we were, which was like Monkey, some of like the New Orleans jazz yeah. and the punk rock. And we said, hey, this is kind of like our band now. Like when the first thing that you heard Quality Softcore, that's more of just, just the first ha- songs that we happened to write. But this is the first, these, this next batch, these are the first songs that's really our band, yeah. you know? And he said, just put out the first record. We'll put on an Honest Dawns. You know, I'll hear the new stuff. And then, you know, if it fits. You didn't we'll, re-record it, right? No, we didn't. Yeah. Okay. No. And then he said, maybe we'll put it out on Fat Records. And uh, so, yeah, he heard the new stuff and it, it fit in with Fat Records. And the Duck and Cover, our second album, came out on Fat Records. Yeah, great album. Because of your diversity, <clears throat> what scenes do you fit in with best? None. I mean, are you, <laughs> but are you able to sort of play in different scenes, right? I mean, yeah. you're in the punk scene, but you can also play. Yeah, that, and that's what's really cool, you know, especially in different countries. Like we've done reggae festivals. We've done festivals in Portugal with Capleton and, you know, Julian Marley and us, you know, and completely did great. Like had a great show. Um tailored our set a little bit more to the more groovy reggae stuff. Yeah. It was just a great fit. I would know? think it'd be a, a big benefit for you guys because if you're playing in that scene, then the punk rock's going to give you an edge and you kind of stand out. But if you're in the punk scene, your you're ska and this other stuff is going to yeah. make you stand out from the other bands. Yeah. And so we can go, you know, we can play with Sick of It All one day and then go play with, you know, Julian Marley the next day. Right, right. And And it's been great to be able to do that, you know. It's starting to happen more and more. So like I said, Europe is... Uh, Definitely, it's more often that we're able to play in these diverse lineups. And I think the States is kind of catching up. They have a little bit to catch up as far as the just music festivals, you know. Yeah. It's been such a culture in Europe for so many years. And uh, it's becoming much more popular in the States, but it's still a little bit behind the times as far as the diversity in the different festivals, you know. So right before we, we hit record, you, I think you mentioned that you have some other project you're doing too. I also work with this artist, Doja Cat. She's a rapper. I've been in the studio with her for, I mean, she's been, her, her and my buddy Yeti, uh, they've been, I've been with Yeti as far as like studio partners for years. And uh, she is, she's been around for a couple of years and she just had a, like a, a viral song that hit about a year and a half ago. And so I've been able to do a lot of touring with her and just be part of that whole process, which is, is more of like, you know, the rap side of it. Yeah. So uh, it's been pretty cool. The last, actually, the last two days, all I've been doing is just been making beats. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you, you use? get a placement? What, what software do you use? Uh, I use Logic. Yeah. Um, I'm really going to get into Ableton because everybody that I know that used to use Pro Tools or Logic uses Ableton. When you look back over the 25-year career of Mad Caddies, is there a chapter that stands out as being like the most difficult period and also maybe one that's the, the most magical? Yeah, we had a, our first Australian tour that we did in 2000 was pretty intense. Uh, it was our first time we'd ever did like four, four months touring straight. We did our first European headlining tour and then we, we came back to the States for like two days and then we flew to Japan for, with no effects. And then we flew from Japan to Australia to start a two month tour. And the entire time, I mean, we were living our, it was at the peak of our partying, you know, yeah, yeah. And on a nightly basis. So by the time, by the time we got done with Japan with no effects, I mean, so it's the unhealthiest you've ever been. Hands down. Yeah. Yeah. And then we were flying to start a two month tour in Australia, two month tour. We, I mean, it was, it was a part of it, like a publicity stunt with Friends of Rome, like the, the, the band that we were opening for. They were an Australian band. And uh, I mean, it was amazing. We got to go to places that no one, most Australians don't get to go to, you know? But it was pretty intense because you'd have all your, you know, they party <laughs> really hard down there. And the shows, you know, it'd be everything from theaters and clubs down to like smaller like bars and after a while, we just started kind of losing it, you know? Yeah. And uh, we actually, that we, the, we had to cancel the tour about a month and a bit. I think we, we, we lasted about five weeks, but we had to cancel because at the end of the tour was driving up to like Cairns to Northern Australia, yeah. like where there's more crocodiles than people. And then driving through to like Alice Springs or wherever, like in the uh, Table Rock, or like, not Table Rock, that's South Africa, in the middle of uh, Australia, the big, yeah. the giant mountain. And then driving from there all the way to Perth, all driving, and we said we're going to go insane if we. Yeah. If we, we, we Did you so, kind of feel uh, yourself kind of losing a little bit? Oh, definitely, definitely. I felt my losing of myself losing it before we even got to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, let alone you know like five. Uh, we, we left Australia. Fr- uh, thank, thankfully, uh, Strung Out came over and uh, filled in for us. Uh, thank God, and, and and they killed it for the rest of the tour. But that was a pretty intense. That was a pretty intense time. Now we don't really do anything more than like uh, two weeks is, is kind of like the maximum. Yeah. No one um, tried to kill anyone, huh? Intra-band no, no, fights? No one succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People tried, but yeah. no, no one actually did it. That's good. Yeah. And then at the same time, there's been a lot of great moments. You know, Obviously, when we first started, there was a lot of great moments just because they were our first. But then, you know, there's for no particular reason, there's certain tours that have just kind of come together and are, are magical, yeah. you know, because uh, like a lot of it has to do with your crew and your, like the other bands being really cool. I mean, that makes things so much better when you really enjoy everybody's company yeah. and yeah. their music, yeah. you know, it's, it really matters. So uh, there's been tours like that, you know, that, that are random, that are just great tours. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with round two. Ernie Ball just got even slinkier. We're excited to welcome four new gauges to our world-famous slinky guitar string lineup. Whether you play lead, rhythm, or drop tune for heavy riffs, Ernie Ball has a combination perfect for your playing style. 
Now offering skinny top beefy bottom slinkies, combining the lighter playability of the regular slinky set with the low end of the popular beefy slinkies. And Mondo slinkies for players who prefer a slightly heavier high end than our skinny top heavy bottoms. Also, Turbo slinkies, which sit neatly between the popular regular slinky and hybrid slinky strings, and Mighty slinkies, sitting just between super slinkies and extra slinkies. Head to ErnieBall.com to find yours today. All right, we're back. Round two, Sasha Lazor from Mad Caddies. Round two. So last time we talked, being the minivan driving soccer dad that I am, I had never heard of Doja Cat, <laughs> but I, uh, <laughs> I went home, looked her up, and was quite entertained, to say the least. Yeah, she's and, entertaining. Uh, yeah, so she's huge. We, we kind of mention her casually, but she's got like millions of streams and, and mega videos on, on YouTube. A little little background. So it sounds like she broke through with a, a viral video called Moo with the memorable line, bitch, I'm a cow. Yeah, correct. With uh, matching uh, imagery. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah. It was a song, I mean, uh, that she she, rec she recorded some songs just by herself, you know, and a buddy sent her a, a loop and, uh, and a basic beat, and she just kind of, you know, jokingly made a song, you know. She has some SoundCloud songs that are just kind of goofy that she can just record and put out for fun. Yeah. Know? And this was definitely like one of those just have a fun type vibe. Well, that's the thing. It's so it's it's obviously humorous, but she's at the same time carved out this lane where she has a serious musical career at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, once once she, once so many people heard about her, you know, she actually she wasn't just like a a one hit wonder that just had one catchy song. She was you know is a great artist. Yeah. And so all the people that kind of got you know like the, the attention that was drawn to her once people heard her other stuff they're like oh wow she's an actually like like a really talented you know rapper singer songwriter yeah so it's like it's not like it you know she only had one song to like and there, there's various entertaining videos at this point on youtube yeah yeah i don't know how i felt about this my daughter actually after we had the last interview she's like oh she sings that song <laughs> uh, yeah now with like tiktok and stuff like that she has yeah. some other songs you know from tiktok there's so many more mediums these days for artists to, to to bust other than just you know there's radio there's word of mouth but then there's tiktok and there's so many other things so so how do you tie into this project uh well you know i've known her for man since like 17 18 years old for a long time and basically that came about is one of my buddies from Santa Barbara. His name's uh, Yeti Beats. He was back in the day when the Mad Caddies first started out. He was in a band called Slimer. We became friends and played at some shows together. And then we kind of started doing a bunch of touring and kind of we lost touch. And then we reconnected at a, re a reggae show. You know, we both were punk, you know, punk rock guys that, you know, when we got back together, it was like we both loved hip hop and reggae and he had a studio in LA, so I went over and hung out, and we just started collaborating. And just then, Doja Cat came about, and Yeti started working with her a lot and making music for her. Well, how did he know her? Uh, we had a, another mutual friend named Jerry who who just you know she, at that time okay. she was just you know like a sixteen year old kid okay. that had some stuff up on SoundCloud, and so she she just came to the studio randomly one day. Yeah, you know, Yeti and I together, like Yeti especially, he's worked with you know Cool Keith and Sizzla and a bunch of different hip hop and reggae acts and stuff like that. So she she was just another artist, and then you know got really comfortable with her over the years, and you know Yeti's been there since the very beginning, just uh, helping her with her career and. You know, did he write creatively, on, musically? On uh, Moo? No, he didn't write Moo. Okay. No, no, I think she was, she did that all herself just in like, a, I think she did the song and the video in less than 24 hours and put it out. 
Really? Yeah. <laughs> it was just one of those joke SoundCloud, you know, kind of, yeah. kind of things. You know? Oh, man. Okay. But you're going on the road with her. So what are you doing there? Uh, well, so yeah. So once she started playing shows and touring, you know, obviously with all my experience with the caddies, I was just kind of came along just to help in, in ways that I knew I could. At this point, you know, we all believed in her since the beginning. So whether it was, you know, driving, driving her to the show or, you know, making sure that, you know, the monitors were okay at soundcheck. Yeah. You know, so you were all a guy who had been those, around the yeah, block. Like, you knew how yeah, to tour. Like a little TM, a little teching, you know. Oh, wow. Um, okay. we, we did South by Southwest in 2014. Uh, we used to, like, I played guitar on, on, on one of the songs live. You know, everything. You know, taking her home at night after a studio session or whatnot. Any, anything that we could do because we just, you know, she's a really talented, cool girl. And, we, you know, yeah. we all believed in her, so. And you're going to possibly do some writing? Yeah, I mean, ideally, I mean, I'm, I'm headed over there right now. We're uh, working on some new songs. And so I'm just bringing a bunch of guitars over to the studio. And we're just going to basically I'm just going to play for a couple hours and chop up, chop up some things and see what see what makes it. You know, at this point, just because I know her doesn't mean it. You know, everyone submit songs, you know, best song wins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no matter who does it. You know? Sure, sure. So um, but yeah, it's, it's been fun, you know, and. And it seems like a lot of the producers that, that she uses have, you know, have all known her for a while and really kind of get her vibe. Would you be inclined to, to move in a certain direction, like bring reggae in or more guitar or, or more maybe maybe some vibe that she wouldn't be normally getting? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, there's been times on tour in the bus. You know, I always bring an acoustic guitar in the bus. Like there's rarely ever a tour where there's not an acoustic laying around just for fun. And sometimes, you know, whether it's in the morning or at night, I'll just be jamming on acoustic and, you know, we'll just come up with cool songs. She'll come up with some great melodies that's just uh, just based off of what I'm playing. It's just another great way to write, you know, as opposed to just hearing a beat and just kind of being stuck to that, you know, yeah. beat can kind of change the chords around it and stuff. So do you listen to more hip hop now? Uh, since we've been touring and stuff with Doja, yeah. I definitely have, you know, we played a lot of festivals. And so I've seen a lot of amazing yeah, artists yeah. that I never really heard of before. Yeah. Um, but I've always had a pretty eclectic taste in music. Like when I was in high school, I was listening to, you know, punk rock and I was listening to Cypress Hill and Ice Cube like religiously. So yeah. I've always, you know, reggae, I've always listened to a lot of different types of music. Yeah. Yeah. So at the risk of sounding like a uh, minivan driving soccer dad, when you say, <laughs> when you say making beats, yeah, do beats, beats entail more than just a drum beat? Are you talking about chord progression and, and different layers of instruments? Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. You know, it's like taking uh, loops or samples and just, you know, creating something out of that, you know. And there, there's many different ways to do it, you know. Some people start off with, the, you know, like a phrase on a keyboard and then build a drum pattern around that. Some people start with drum patterns. Obviously, hip hop in the old, in the old days and still now, but a little bit less, people start off with a sample. You know, like a, whether it's a soul, like a, a vocal hook from some old soul song, take that, chop it up and then put some music behind that. You know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. So would you maybe record a guitar riff and then use that as your own sample? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I do that a lot because I can play a musical instrument just like, you know, piano players, obviously, uh, you know, everyone makes their beats differently. Whether you sample something and you never really play any musical instrument on it and you just use the, the music from the sample or whether, you know, like I might come up with a couple of cool guitar riffs and then just kind of loop them and then come up with, you know, a drum pattern behind that and, a, you know, then a bass pattern. And the same thing with reggae. Like a lot of the reggae music that I've done in Jamaica is the same thing. Yeah, come up yeah. with a cool bass line. Usually in, with reggae, it starts with the bass line. So you come up with a cool bass line and then, 
you just build it all around that. Nice. All right. Well, I'm excited to see what you could might bring Doja Cat's way because I think that could be a really cool pairing with your your yeah. your style and hers mixing. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. We'll see I what mean, happens. I mean, right right now, like I said, a, a, a lot of a lot of really cool producers that we work with are submitting a lot of really cool songs. There's a lot of collaboration that goes on as well. Yeah. You know, it's not just yeah. one person just do, does all their beats. You know, I mean, we have everyone has their own music, and then also we also have songs that people have collaborated on you know like a yeti in particular you know he's really great at collaborating with different people and there's no there's there's no ego that goes goes with it it's just kind of whoever's got the best idea and it's a uh, it's great to be able to work with people that can collaborate like that and not have anything get in the way does this conflict with mad caddies at this point no i'm able to, i'm able to do both you know we'll see what happens in the future but right now Nothing has really uh, clashed yet, and I don't see a, a, like a, any problem in the future with it at all. Yeah. 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 Cool. In fact, like I said, I love to do both. I mean, I love the caddies. It's such a different world, you know. I mean, playing a live rock and roll reggae sky, you know, is great. And then, but you know, just the different types of festivals you play and the different traveling and everything. It's a, it's really cool. I could, I could, you know, there's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. And especially because I love so many, so much different types of music, it's great to one day be at, a, you know, like a, a rap yeah. festival. Yeah. You know. You're really lucky you can and break up your year that way, too. Yeah, I can go be listening to Little Wayne, you know, one day or Post Malone and the next day, sick of it all, you know, it's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So, speaking of last time we talked about touring and we, we talked about how you have such a unique job where you, meet all kinds of people you become more worldly and and inevitably sort of come out with a bigger picture of reality i would think so all the places you know around the world mm -hmm. we also talked about maybe the flip side you guys had that long tour and then ending in australia and you guys started to kind of go nuts yeah i guess we and, uh, that was the closest we've come to un yeah. unraveling <laughs> so i kind of want to dig in there a little more so does the the going nuts part do you think that's more a function of something inherent to touring and the transient lifestyle and being unanchored and having new fans every day or is it simply a matter of partying too hard uh both okay <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. i'm sure there's plenty of people that probably are straight edge that touring drives them crazy just from the amount of uh the amount of traveling that you do but i think it's definitely a combination of both you know it, it, touring is a lot easier it's a little more boring but it's a lot easier if you're not hung over every day for sure I mean, yeah, yeah, the jet lag. If you just have to go to a show and show up and do the sound check and, and wait around and do the show. But w when you involve press with that, you know, having to be at a radio station. Podcast. <laughs> podcast. You know, yeah. No, when you, when you involve on tour, especially when you involve things like press uh, and ha always having to be in a car going from A to B, that definitely takes a toll as well. Touring in a bus is generally a lot more relaxed. Because, you know, you, you, even though you're in a different place, you kind of have the same routine every day. Yeah. But when you're doing fly shows, you know, as an example, Australia, uh, we were driving a lot. But also when you when you have to when you finish a show and you get back to the hotel at 2.30 or 3 a.m. and you have to be up at 7 or 6 to get to the airport for another flight and you do that five days in a row, you know, yeah. it's it's really starts to add up yeah. after a while. You know? Yeah. Our band, we have all our, have a really good relationships with each other, you know. We don't fight a lot. And even then it's still difficult, you know? Yeah. So I can only imagine if you actually like really despised everybody in your band, you know, it's just too much of anybody in close proximity over a long duration. Yeah. There's going to be issues. Totally. Yeah. You know, and now with our band, you know, we were getting older and some people got families and whatnot. So, 
we, ha- we, I think we play a very healthy amount of shows. Yeah. You know, and when we do get together, we're happy to see each other. And the tour is, you know, a 10 day tour right now is, is, is usually an average. You guys tour. have learned though. Yeah, we've learned. You know, it's you funny know? that Australian tour that you mentioned, which was basically tacked on to the end of lots of other tours. That's yeah, part it of was the like story. Four, like yeah. four months or three yeah. and a half months of touring in all around the world. But know? when you said that, I started looking up, I'm like, what he said, Friends-O-Rama tour. So I started looking up Friends-O-Rama. Friends-O-Rama. I, I yeah. eventually figured it out. Oh, okay. And I was like, <laughs> Friends of Ron. Mad Caddies. <laughs> and finally I came across, oh, Friends of Rom, I completely forgot. Again, being out of the scene for a long time. Yeah, like Friends yeah. of Rom, I yeah, remember you rem- them. Now you remember I them. I remember yeah. them, and it hit me like, yeah, an Australian band. That's that makes where total we, sense. we met them on the Warp Tour, and we got on really well. Like the, uh, They played a couple of shows, one of those bands that we kind of yeah. had an instant connection with. The, the other thing that made that tour in particular difficult was Australians in general, or they, they like the party. You yeah. know, and so, so when in Rome, yeah, when in Rome, the first time I ever really got punched hard was by a rugby player in Australia. Really? Yeah. I, I had like a scar for like two years and then eventually. It went Why away. would anyone punch you? Uh, Chuck was doing donuts in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> Our singer was doing donuts in the parking lot of a club after a show. And apparently oh, front man. apparently came too close to, to some rugby players and. I don't remember much after that. <laughs> really? There was no contest. Were you I in think, the car with I think Chuck? one rugby player went through six of us in like three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> did, did Chuck get socked too? No. Actually, I don't remember what happened to Chuck, but I know myself and Mark, our bass player, we both got hit. And I remember that only because we have a photo of it <laughs> with, blood, with blood coming down, like my chin going down my neck. Uh, I think he was wearing a ring or something like that. Ooh. But it really didn't hurt that bad. It was more of just like a nick and a cut. So we talked briefly about Warp Tour, but what are some of your your early recollections of coming in contact with the Ernie Ball Company? Well, obviously at that time you guys had the RV. Yes. You know, and you guys also had air conditioning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you guys happened to be from like our neck of the woods. So that was like play guitar and the air conditioning with some friends from, you know, or some people that, you know, from the same area. It was a no brainer. I'm going to add, and we had a fridge stocked and we were inside the gates where all the other buses were backstage. Yes. Because our bus was also a booth. Yes. Where we display guitars. Exactly. And prime viewing. Like, you know, like we were stuck backstage in the bus and our bus at that time was like an 18 bunk. Like it was uh, packed to the rafters with motorcycle riders and crew. Yeah. So it wasn't like a, you know, a rock star bus where you go on and you got, you know, you can lay in the lounge. It's like you walk at any given time. There's like seven people yeah, like yeah. at the least, you know, it, like I said, I think literally there's like 18 people on the bus. Yeah. So it wasn't the most comfortable place to hang out. So yeah. So you, you guys used us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cold beer. Cold place, you know. Sure, free guitar good, strings. Good, good place to, yeah. to do some to do some girl watching. Yeah. Grab a guitar, play. You know, yeah, it yeah. was like being in someone's living room, yeah. but you're in the middle of the warp tour. It was it was a fortunate setup being in the warp tour, having that. Yeah, this is but, summer yeah. through the East Coast through Texas. Yeah, ninety five degrees in Houston or whatever. You yeah, know, yeah. You want you want you need to escape. You yeah. know. And I, I was saying before, I remember you know like. Uh, when Sterling came to town, Uncle Sterling came to town in, in Florida. I was saying he took Chuck and I, our singer, to a steakhouse, Shula's. You know, I, like I said, I, f- I had a, I don't collect a lot of things, but I, for some reason I had a, like a matchbook from Shula's yeah. Steakhouse in Fort Lauderdale or Miami or wherever it was. And I'm like, oh, wait, Sterling, Sterling took us there. I think that was the first time I'd ever been to a really nice steakhouse. Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember that night, too. I mean, 
And we were hardly sober at that point by the time dinner rolled around. But Absolutely I do not. remember it was somewhere in Florida. Mm-hmm. Shula's, though. That kind of rings a bell. Yeah. Yeah. It's Fort Lauderdale or Miami, wherever Shula. I'm pretty sure. I wonder if the dinner there. was actually as good as I remember it. I, at, hey, after after being on the Warp Tour for two months, yeah, way better than a hamburger or beans or something like that. Yeah. No, I, I remember it being good. So you guys are all kind of spread out at this point where, where you all live. Yeah. How, what does the writing process look like? It used to be everything was a very collaborative, you know. We'd get, get, get in the studio, one person would have an idea, and we'd build on that. But then, you know, once everyone started getting better, you know, Chuck is very capable of writing, you know, an entire song, as well as, uh, like, Todd, our drummer. Um, I'm not so good at writing entire songs. I'm getting better at it. You know, I think what do you that, mean? You're more of a parts guy? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a parts guy. You know, uh-huh. like I'll come up with, with, with parts. And, and I think what I do in the band is because uh, the music that I listen to, you know, like the New Orleans jazz, punk rock, like the different genres that we play. Like I might take an, like a song that Chuck has or something that uh, an idea and be like, well, let's try it in different styles and find something that would ma- might make it a little bit more caddies. Chuck, Chuck's got some great songs that he's written from beginning to end. Uh, I still think that the, um, the, the iconic caddy songs are the ones where everybody has a part in it. There's a, a certain type of magic and a, and a sound that comes from everybody kind of contributing. It is that push and pull. You don't realize it when you're a single songwriter. You think, no, I know how it should be. But, yeah. But and, once you get that push and pull, it, and, and it really is a better product that it comes might out. Be, it might be a little more stressful. You know, you might yeah. have more arguments and things like that. But I think the end result. You got to run it through the gauntlet. Yeah, you have to. You have to. You know, that being said, you know, like one of, Drinking for Eleven, one of our biggest songs, you know, uh, Chuck wrote the whole thing. Well, even Drinking for Eleven, you guys obviously have your fingerprints on there once you add the layers. Yeah. And the horns and the, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that, actually, this exact reference came up. We did a, a Tool podcast with Justin Chancellor, and we we referenced back to the uh, Queen movie yeah. where Freddie Mercury goes solo for a little bit. It just didn't work out. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. No. That, I, actually, I heard part of that podcast. Yeah, I yeah. know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. 100% but true. You can't always tell in the moment, but once you get through the process, you have a better product. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, everyone's fighting for their position yeah in the moment you're like no and and it's painful you know sometimes like because you don't want to argue with people you know yeah. like that's not fun yeah it's not fun to like tell someone i don't like that you know that my idea is better or i you know i prefer this you know all right sasha thanks again yeah, man, for being on the podcast thanks for tuning in to striking a chord and ernie ball podcast that was great catching up with my pal sasha lazor go check out some mad caddy's music watch some doja cat videos and if you're up for it, why not give Striking Accord a kind review? As always, you can reach us at strikingaccord at ernieball.com. How about, you know, you mentioned Michael Jackson last time and you got his autograph. Did that work out with the girls that you were meeting in Santa Barbara? No.